0: Hello and welcome back to the album years. And, uh, well, we've been away for a while, haven't we, Tim? We've been away since October or November. When was the last episode we did? Was might it might have even been
1: October. I'm not sure. It's quite a long time ago. I'm sure somebody will correct us. I'm sure there is going to be a major error having been committed here.
0: Probably so. Whatever, whatever the case, it's been a while. We are back uh, due to incredible popular demand. Is that not right? I think
1: the words you're looking for, overwhelming love.
0: For those of you who don't know this show, basically myself and Tim just talk bollocks about music we love in a very opinionated way. And we should also point out uh, in a very personal way. So we're talking about the artists that mean a lot to us. And I know there are, sometimes there are people that are complaining about we don't talk about this artist, we don't talk about that artist, but it's nothing personal. It's nothing personal. Although, well, in fact, it is. It's exactly that. <laughs> it is very personal, isn't it? It's very personal. What I mean is it's not personal to the yeah. bands that we're what, not talking about. What we're saying about.
1: is... We hate everything that everyone else likes. I think that's what you're saying.
0: Exactly. Just to clarify, obviously, that we are, you know, we're white men that grew up in the 80s. And that is going to kind of be reflected in the kind of music that we enthuse about and we talk about. And in fact, today, we are going to be focusing on 1981, Tim. And there's a logic for us choosing this year, isn't there?
1: There is, yeah. It's not only the 40th anniversary, it's obviously a year after... You know, broadly speaking, we started the album years and we started with the 1980. So we're doing the year after that. And we're sort of interested to know what happened really. How different was it? Because you know, during that period, one of the things I remember is that music genres shifted constantly, and that there was always some new scene or some new sound or something pretty radical happening. And and to a degree, I'm sure these things are happening today, but I think at that particular point in culture, you and I were just the right age to be listening out for changes. And not only that, I think that music probably had a greater standing in the overall culture of the day. I think it was perceived as more important.
0: I mean, for me, I literally became a teenager uh, in November 1980. So 1981 is the first full year when I would have been a teen, you know. And and teenage years, obviously, is a very, very special time for discovery, isn't it? Discovery in all fields. I was going to say, I think as well, it was
1: kind of an interesting time because what you got in the late 70s, early 80s, as we probably discussed in the 1980 edition, was a fantastic collision of new sounds and old sounds. A lot of the older artists seemed to be learning from the newer artists. A lot of the newer artists were really broadening their scope in the late 70s, early 80s. So it was... Quite an exciting time um, of discovery for the musicians as well as the fans, really.
0: So we should probably crack on. So 1981, and Tim, you've put this list together t- this time around. So you've you've been quite specific here, I must say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> northwest mm. regional post punk. First of all, maybe you should explain exactly what you mean by northwest regional post punk.
1: Well, I think. In one of the last um, album years we did, it was 74, I think, and I described it as being the year of Prague. And by that, I meant that Prague had infiltrated everything. And, you know, that could be a Willie Nelson concept album. It could be, you know, a grand metal album. It was everywhere. And I think that with 1981, that post-punk had kind of infiltrated everything. And in the Northwest, in Liverpool and Manchester, there was a massive scene of particularly distinctive sounding post-punk bands. And in the Liverpool scene I think you had Tears of Explodes and the Bunny Man, who had a slightly more sixties psychedelic influence to their sound. And in the Mancunian scene, which kinda came out of magazine and Joy Division to an extent, Martin Hannett, the producer, was a major part of it. And there was a very distinct sound and a distinct gloominess in particular to the manchester sound
0: so so let's talk about some of those al- i mean some of my favorite albums in this category already uh for such a specific you know kind of subset if you like of music there's at least three or four records in here that, that i hold very dear um and two of them are are part of the factory actually three of them three of them are part of the factory family so factory being arguably the most famous label to ever come out of manchester and the association you mentioned also with Martin Hannett, also the design Peter Savile. Yeah. This was that very recognisable sort of element to all the record sleeves, wasn't there? First of all, a certain ratios to each. I'm not sure if we've talked about a certain ratio uh, on the show before. I mean, this is my favourite album of theirs. To each, this was their first studio record, and they're kind of strange, aren't they? Because they're they're almost like what you might think of as a jazz funk band. Playing alternative post-punk music, yeah. you can almost hear the bass player's kind of frustrated Mark Mark King fan or yes. something. <laughs> but the pr- but the production is obviously very being being Martin. H- is it Martin Hannett that produced it? Should is Martin Hannett? I think he did that it one. one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is Martin Hannett. Yeah. It has the same kind of signature production style as what Joy Division were doing at the time. Uh, you know, with, or, or had been doing with with Closer. Yeah. So. It's a kind of strange, they're kind of strange bedfellows in in a way, aren't they? That kind of funk element with that kind of alternative post-punk aesthetic. But they weren't the only ones, were there? There was a kind of element of funk in in quite a few of the post-punk bands, weren't there? I
1: think so, yeah. I mean, I think there's another mankinian band who came a bit later in terms of recordings. Anyway, Dislocation Dance were in that sort of field as well. And it's sort of interesting to contrast it with the New York post-punk sound because obviously Talking Heads blended funk jazz elements, because of course they had John Hassel on Remain in Light, um, with a kind of grittier New York post-punk narrative style. But it sounds nothing like a certain ratio and nothing like those Mancunian bands in that style. As you say, I think part of it is Martin Haddard's signature production, which sort of follows on from what he did the year previously with Druity Column. I think it has that very kind of mm. icy, almost like shards of glass in your face at times. The the amount of sort of echo, delay and quite toppy processing. Mm. Um But it's it's an amazing record because I think what you hear on this is you say on one level, it's almost like chic or Mark King to come. This kind of good time funk, but with extremely bad time feelings. You know, this is as glum, as closer, if not more so in some ways. And, and the vocals have got a certain Ian Curtis quality as well.
0: Well, I think that I was just going to say that there's that kind of miserabilism, isn't there, about this record? And also a kind of deadness to the vocal delivery, a very kind of arch deadness, almost underachieving voice, yeah. which makes it sound very cold and very remote. I mean, when you listen to Talking Heads, it's this kind of sense of joy, isn't there? So maybe it's the Manchester thing, that kind of sense of miserablism, because you've already pointed out that the Liverpool bands didn't have that, did they? There was more of a sense of of sort of paisley, inflected flamboyance about those bands, that the Manchester bands didn't have that. And you have that in Juriti Column as well, which is the other album. Actually, there are two other albums that, that are from Factory at this this time, uh, from this year, Juriti Column's LC, the follow-up to the record that we talked about on our original episode, uh, called the Return of the Juriti Column, which was ironically their first album. But the other album from this year that came out of Factory was the first album by a band that was to become incredibly influential and arguably made the greatest single of the whole eighties, New Order. And this is this is obviously pre pre Blue Monday. They're still very much in that kind of miserablest post-Joy Division pocket, aren't they, on this album? But there are elements of electronic music beginning to come in too, isn't there, that that obviously will will pan out much further as they go on through the decade?
1: Well, yeah, I think it is a real in-between album. I mean, for me, it's actually possibly my favourite New Order album because I think what they managed to do is um, they're almost taking Closer further. To me, I always saw it as being an extension of what Closer suggested. And, you know, Ian Curtis was a massive loss, but... In some weird way, musically and even vocally, this carries his spirit completely. And hmm. it is where you feel Joy Division would have gone. So I think half of the album is a very logical, slightly more expansive follow on from what they've done on Closer and the singles such as Atmosphere. And half of it is that kind of electronic even almost funk electronica that hints at what New Order are going to do. But, of course, the, the vocals on this are, as with the A Certain Ratio, quite dead, quite Curtis. It is that Manchester sound of the day.
0: And we talked about this before, I think, with, with relation to a few albums. It's that idea that there's a certain album which catches a band between two worlds. yeah, And it, and it somehow has the best of both. And I think that 's what I love about about new order 's uh, movement record is you 're right it's, it does have it still has the the sort of signature sounds of, of joy division but it's it 's in that transitional phase where they haven 't quite become the electronic band they 're going to with Power, Corruption and Lies and obviously Blue Monday, the classic electronic singles. But they're starting to work a lot more with electronic instruments and synthesizers. And for me, that's the balance that I personally love the most. I mean, much yeah. as I love Blue Monday, I don't love Power, Corruption and Lies as much as I love movement because there's still, still so much of what I love about what came before as well as what is about to come. And so for me, it's just capturing them on that in that perfect sort of just little six-month window where they had the best of both worlds. And we've, you know, we've definitely talked about... Our with relation, And I think we're going to talk about another one later on that has exactly the same, without wishing to preempt, we're going to talk about Rush's Moving Pictures, which to me is exactly the same thing. It has the best of what came before and the best of what's to come. And to me, it's the perfect point to listen to that band and, yeah. that, uh, and that record. Well,
1: New Order is still very much a band on this as well. I think one of the things that um, distinguishes it is that very... Almost ice cold tribal drumming, which you could hear on bits of Closer and certainly on Atmosphere as well. There's a lot of that on this album. I was always mm. very drawn to that style. And I guess it's probably the last album where that's prominent, really. I think the electronics in terms of percussion take over from this point onwards. And, and Hannah, of course, produced the magazine album from this year, Magic, Murder and the Weather, which um, was the sound of a band falling apart. And I love it because I think you've got Titter Explodes Wilder and magazine's Magic, Murder and the Weather. And they're clearly the sound of bands that are falling apart. They're not getting on well. It reminds me a bit of um, the Smiths' last album in some ways, Strange Ways, Here We Come, where you can tell it's an unhappy band, but because they're pulling apart, it's very eclectic. A lot more influences are coming through. And in some ways, a lot more desperation and expression is coming through. So on the Chairs of Explodes album, for example, you know, they flirt with anything from epic acoustic ballads to electronic ambient pieces to talking head style funk it's all over the place but it's really exciting and the magazine album is sort of similar really it's magazine in pop mode it's magazine in experimental mode it's magazine at times in jazz funk mode and the hannock production kind of enhances the weirdness of magazine's final album as it was for that lineup anyway
0: and also we should mention Echo and the Bunnymen's second album, Heaven Up Here, which I think is my favourite. That and Ocean Rain are my favourite, Echo and the Bunnymen. Yeah, I, I mean, agree. I mean, we've mentioned Talking Heads a few times. You've also got a category here called New York, and you've got four records in this. Three of them are basically Talking Heads records, aren't they? <laughs> uh, Tom, Tom Tom Club, uh, self-titled, David Byrne's uh, Catherine Wheel album, and for me, the best of the bunch, the David byrne Brian Eno album, My Life in the Bush of Ghost, which has been... Hotly debated over the years as a kind of uh, a forerunner of of sampling culture, uh, which is essentially what it is. It's a record of instrumental tracks where the the vocal quote unquote is taken from snatches of found sound and speech. And uh, uh, I think there's even a track with a recording of an exorcism on it. But it's 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 a fascinating. I mean, I listened. I did listen to it again in preparation. Uh, for this, this record, I don't know if it's stood the test of time fantastically well, certainly not in the way that Remain in Light has. And I think part of the reason why, for me personally anyway, it, it hasn't quite stood the test of time is because I think a lot of the, the tropes are so over familiar to us now almost using sample voices as a kind of hook instead of a instead of a melodic vocal hook those things are obviously you know they are the very bedrock of of modern pop music aren't they so but it's extraordinary that that a record like this was made in you know 1979 1980 not released till 81 but I think they started on it even in the late 70s and and in that sense it was it was definitely ahead of its time and what's your take on it yeah
1: I I agree with you I think in one On one level, it's very now in the sense that it dispenses completely with melody. As you said, it's using samples as hooks. And there is very little melody. This is pure sound design and rhythm, really. And I love it, though, like you, I prefer Remain in Light partly because I prefer, you know, burn in that role as kind of vocalist, narrator, and some of the more unexpected elements that happen with Remain in Light. I think Remain in Light kind of hits my sweet spot because... It manages to be both experimental, but also incredibly accessible and memorable. You know, this is very much a research and development album, and it's great. And when we talk about the New York thing, again, it comes into this Northwest regional post-punk, doesn't it? That you had a very distinct Liverpudlian sound during the post-punk era, a very distinct Mancunian sound. And there's that very distinct New York melting pot sound as well. And, you know, obviously Remain in Light has it. Um, David Burns' The Catherine Wheel, which is brilliant, has it. This has it. But also, I think that people like King Crimson, Gang of Four, John Hassel, all of this kind of comes out of that melting pot. You know, when King Crimson re-emerged in 1981 with Discipline, it's weirdly quite closely linked with that kind of New York experimentation. And um, Gang of Four, though, on one level, quite a British political post-punk band, to me, a lot of their rhythms and their approach seem to be more talking heads than it did joy division or xtc or wire
0: so maybe because i've just mentioned it we should move on to um the category progressive and progressive related because i mentioned the rush album being another example of an album that is catching a band kind of at a perfect point between two worlds between traveling from one world to another and there's a, There are many Rush albums I don't know, to be fair, I, I should say that in, in complete transparency, but I think this is, of the ones I do know, this is the best, in the sense that it has the best of the pop sensibility that is to come, the more kind of keyboard-orientated sound that is to come, and their roots as a classic, progressive, hard rock band just great songs on this record i think i think some of these songs are you know have become real evergreens haven't they songs like limelight mm-hmm. and and tom sawyer you know they're kind of staples of, of classic rock radio aren't they because they are essentially great pop songs
1: i, I think you're right i think that permanent waves kind of hints very strongly at this i mean permanent waves is also in between worlds because you can hear hemispheres in permanent waves but then you can hear moving pictures and the more concise more pop oriented uh, direction to come but You know, for a pop album, it's really uncompromising. You know, you talked about Limelight and, you know, it's a very natural sounding, great rock pop piece. But it's in several time signatures. It constantly shifts. And what's great about this album in a way is there's no sense of compromise. I mean, it's really quite accessible. It's very contemporary as well. I mean, whatever we say, this is coming from a progressive and a hard rock background but actually in terms of the sort of the razor edge guitar production in terms of that toppiness in some of the the drum sounds it's very 1981 you know this is a band completely in control of the era they're in while being completely true to where they came from
0: you can definitely hear they've been listening to The Police can't yeah, you, yeah. for example you know on a song like Vital Signs there's obviously that you know that sort of Regatta de Blanc white reggae aspect to that song and I think in a lot of Alex's guitar tones on this record you can hear he's been listening to Andy Summers yeah and I'm not so familiar with Permanent Waves I mean I do know it but, but it seems to me and I might be wrong about this it seems to me this is also the album where Geddy leaves behind completely the kind of shrill shrieking aspects of his vocal delivery it's, it's like you use the word relax and I think that's a very good way of putting it his vocal delivery on this record seems more relaxed more natural less the kind of vocal that's likely to turn off somebody as much as turn them on because the you know however much you love early rush it's a very much an acquired taste because usually because of the vocal approach
1: Mm. i I think you're right i think there are elements on it on early tracks i mean certainly with permanent waves it's not particularly shrill there are a couple of tracks where it is so it's almost as if that's the last vestiges of the shrillness um That's kind of what I meant. And on this, yes, you're right. It's completely gone. Yeah, There's less of the Pavlov's dog about it, I think you could argue.
0: The the transition from Hemispheres through to Moving Pictures, there was only one album in between. It is fantastic, really, uh, you know, and a complete reinvention. At the time, I would say I knew people who loved new wave, punk,
1: progressive rock, metal, and they all loved Rush.
0: But that's interesting because that's the other thing I suppose I, I hadn't mentioned before is the transition in the lyrical approach yeah. from, say, two albums before, Hemisphere is still this kind of sci-fi hangover from kind of, you know, intellectual sci-fi uh, to something much more worldly. You know, much more about storytelling in the real world rather than the, the, this kind of fantasy world, and it, that's even reflected in the artwork too, isn't it? The change of artwork yeah. from, from say, Hemispheres to to Moving Pictures. So, th- th- I mean, that's that's an extraordinary period of only two years when the band have, have really, you know, reinvented themselves and c- paid off for them commercially, didn't it? Massively, it so. did. And, and to, to their
1: credit, I think they continued to change throughout their career. And if you listen to the next album, Signals, which is very synth oriented again you know quite sophisticated musically but it has a lot more in common with ultravox than it does with um 2112 and you know i think by power windows they're kind of experimenting in a kind of ztt fashion in fact i think they're using some as one of their studios at that point and um you know they were clearly listening and clearly sort of evolving the sound and somebody who we're going to discuss later i think produced them in the late 80s, early 90s, Rupert Hine. So they were very well aware of Mm. sound and apparently Rush got Rupert Hine because they loved immunity so much.
0: That's interesting. Well, we should talk about immunity in a minute because there is an argument to say that the reason you've chosen 1981, Tim, is just so (laughs) you could talk about... Immunity. Uh, and I, of course, readily agreed for exactly the same reason, but we're going to come on to that. Let's, let's finish in this category of, of the sort of progressive and progressive sort of related. So also this year we have Frank Zappa released three albums this year. Shut Up and Play Your Guitar, a three album box set of guitar solos, Town Rebellion, a live album, You Are What You Is, and another double studio record. Uh, prolific as ever. Camel's Nude, which you've made a, a note here, one of the last traditional progressive releases by a traditional progressive band. And I think you're right. There's something about that that's almost like a throwback. Uh, isn't it? To this sort of great era of conceptual rock music of the mid-70s. Um, and interestingly, their next record, they would go in a completely different direction. In fact, they made a record called A Single Factor, which was, you know, the title was was ironic in the sense that it was deliberately almost ro- trying to write pop songs and hit singles. But Nude, the previous album, were, was the complete antithesis of that. It's almost like an old school conceptual rock record.
1: Yes, you know, everything about it is traditional. It's It's a sort of great, languorous, mid-70s conceptual work with a good theme as well. And, um, you know, this was a time when a lot of the other bands had shifted dramatically. So the Camel album was quite an anomaly, really.
0: The album I actually want to focus on is actually, it's another anomaly, really, because it's not really, it's not a progressive rock album in any way. Uh, It just happens to be made by someone who is associated with that genre. And this is Nick Mason's fictitious sports album. Now, It's interesting because this is one of those albums that I think is an absolute masterpiece, but you'll see plenty of terrible reviews of it uh, all over the internet, partly because it just doesn't belong to the world that I think Nick Mason fans are expecting music, you know, the music he makes to belong to. This is essentially a sort of very playful experimental jazz record, isn't it?
1: A Carla Bley album produced by Nick Mason is kind of how I see it and he's given it the Nick Mason name to to boost her because he rated her very strongly as a composer and she is an extraordinary composer you know in terms of her use of harmony and in terms of her extraordinarily sort of withering and sarcastic lyrics you know she's a real talent and uh, like you I kind of bought it at the time and I really liked it but mainly I liked it because I was a huge Robert Wyatt fan at that time, and anything with Robert Wyatt on would would get me to part with my money, really, and probably still will, you know. And um, there's a couple of pieces on that which are um, hilarious while also being sad. There's one piece which is a kind of yes. pastiche of minimalism,
0: as well, yeah. which goes I'm through. A I'm a minimalist,
1: yeah. which goes through every single minimalist cliche. And what's kind of interesting is that you think of 1981. By that stage, people like Steve Reich and Philip Glass hadn't really become household names in the way that they would you know philip glass
0: i think that joke would certainly have been lost on most of the people that bought this record including myself at the time the joke was completely lost but but i think you're right i mean that's interesting i was going to say something similar to what you said which is that there's this mixture of tenderness uh, and this incredibly biting sarcasm Uh, sometimes within sometimes within the same track. It's a fun record, is Yeah, isn't well, it?
1: there's also that really beautiful... The one track I'd have thought that Pink Floyd fans would like is the Pink Floyd pastiche on it. I think it closes side one. Hot River. Yeah, Hot yeah which Hot is River, brilliant. Yes. And it yeah. is Robert Wyatt singing The Dark Side of the Moon. It's a gorgeous piece of music. Though, of course, you do feel as if it's ripping into Pink Floyd's legacy while producing this gorgeous piece of music. And I think there's another one, I've forgotten the title, but it's the track where he's basically talking about his own depression. And it's
0: done in a way that is hilarious while also being almost tear-jerking. But, uh, but an incredible record and, and really still sounds like nothing else to me, uh, apart from perhaps the rest of the, the Carla Blay, Michael Mantler catalogue. But they, they definitely create, or she certainly created a very, very unique musical world of her own, didn't she? Uh, and, and this is probably the most famous record she made by virtue of the fact that it had a member of Pink Floyd's name on the front cover and you know and I'm very happy about that because that's why I bought it at the time and that's why I fell in love with it um, and, I, and I gave it a chance so well, yeah. I was going to
1: say it's almost like a sort of Carla Blay greatest hits album because I agree with you that basically it is my favourite Carla Blay related release and it's almost as if she's giving everything it's like every aspect of her style is on that album in some respects
0: it's a great calling card for her talent Anyway, let's move on. I, you know, I think 1981, my favourite category for 1981, this is the music that was really arguably the most exciting of all in 1981, was the world of electronic pop music. And there's a long list of records that came out this year that are all, in many ways, all seminal records. Human League's Dare, you know, one of the most influential pop records made, certainly in England anyway. Soft Cells, Non-Stop Erotic Cabaret, Ultravox's Rage and Duran Duran's first album, Spandau Ballet's first album, Heaven 17's Penthouse and Pavement. We could do a whole episode on, on just on that record, I, th- I think, alone, if we wanted yeah, to. Yeah, brilliant record, yeah. D- amazing. Depeche Mode, Speak and Spell, their first album, you know, one of the most important, if not the most important electronic pop acts of all time. Associates' fourth Draw Down, uh, Gary Newman's Dance. But I think there's a couple that you and I particularly feel strongly about. Now, I can't remember if we talked about Simple Minds. I can't remember if Empires and Dance hit the cutting floor or not, but the follow-up album, Sons and Fascination, which was a double album, in fact, it was two separate albums packaged as one, to me is one of, certainly one of the greatest albums to come from post-punk, electro. I mean, we've got it in the electro-pop category, but it's, it's kind of spanning the world of post-punk and electro-pop, isn't it? Because yeah. there's still real drums, real bass on this record. Lots of Charlie Burchill's sort of very angular, post-Bowie Berlin era guitar. That's still very much to the forefront front isn't it but they're certainly they're, they're certainly taken on a lot of the affectations of what will become new romantic sure. music electronic pop but it's odd and also in the sense it's produced by steve hillage which is obviously someone that's associated very much with the previous decade um, and, and steve was always very interested in electronic music and kraut rock music so a lot of these songs are six, seven minutes long. Very repetitive. They don't have conventional pop structures. They're very much into that kind of hypno groove mm. aspect of kraut rock. So you can hear elements of Can and Noy and Kraftwerk as well, can't you? Simple. I mean, I think maybe we talked about this when we did talk about Empires and Dance. A lot of people write off Simple Minds because I think they think of them as as the band they became rather than the band they were. And that's not to say that what they became wasn't good too.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think part of the thing as well, what's exciting, as you say, one of of the great qualities in this album is its relentlessness, its pursuit of ideas for ideas' sake. And it does sit between those worlds of post-punk and the burgeoning electro-pop scene. And what is also apparent in Simple Minds at this stage, and maybe they carried this on for a couple of years afterwards, but this is the last album where it's very much part of their identity. There's something quite... Esoteric about them, lyrically, it never gives anything away. Visually it never gives anything away. There's something about it which is abstract but still quite affecting and exciting. And I think that obviously by the time they become that second rate U2 as people perceive them, lyrically it had become incredibly obvious, incredibly politicized. Um, Mm. you could comprehend what they were about within two or three bars. And of course, you know, you do that well, that's an art in itself. But it's sort of interesting that a band that were almost a complete enigma, in a sense, became so open by the end of the decade.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Just look at the titles on this record, and they're very, very kind of obtuse, aren't they? And you're not quite sure what they're talking about, but it's kind of drawing you in and it's fascinating anyway, which kind of leads us on, I think, to... Tin Drum, doesn't it? Because that's exactly the same as what I would say about Tin Drum. Still Life in Mobile Homes, Visions of China, Sons of Pioneers. I mean, he's talking bollocks, isn't he, basically? (laughs) Utter, utter bollocks. But wow, I love it. I love it. It's amazing. But anyway, musically, this album is just on another planet, isn't it? Just on another planet. Well, it's amazing. I
1: mean, obviously, we talked about Rush earlier, and one of the things that Rush and Japan had is that with each album, they were shifting dramatically into something else by tin drum this is a band that is suddenly completely out on its own and even if there are elements of ymo they've completely personalized them you know this is an incredibly exciting innovative very distinctive sounding album partly because of the use of keyboards which are extraordinary um the harmonies um are very atypical of anyone at any time you know maybe stockhausen perhaps you can bring into the mix here but it sounds very different because we were talking about Hannett's production or the psychedelic production um, on Tertu explodes um, Echo and the Bunny Men in there. This is an incredibly dry, unique soundscape that is all its own world. Actually, I can't necessarily relate it to, you know, Talking Heads, Simple Minds, any of the other. Um, we're discussing.
0: I mean, Richard will tell you that all, the, that all the keyboard sounds that sound like Yellow Magic Orchestra are all Davids. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think, but, you know, what's also interesting, you mentioned the keyboards, but like you say, it's not only that, is it? Because it's one of the last times you can listen to a band and you can listen to 10 seconds of that band and you can immediately identify every single member of the band. Mick Khan, obviously, the arguably the most distinctive bass player to ever stalk the earth i mean and steve jansen on drums as well there's an argument to say that sylvan is probably the weak link in the band and maybe david even would concede it himself i think he went on to become a much better artist as, as a solo artist than he was necessarily within within the context of japan to me the brilliance of japan is the instrumentalist, uh, the, the, the instrumental quality of, of an album like tindrum that almost painterly like quality the music is put together that doesn't seem to obey any rules at all yeah i think
1: you're right and i think to a certain extent whereas david sylvan i think really finds his voice on brilliant trees gone to earth and particularly for me secrets of the beehive which i think is a beautiful album on this there's still perhaps a hangover of the ferry influence or even some of the bowie influence so in some ways you know there's some great songs there and obviously he was responsible for the song so he's not exactly a weak link you know he's written some great material but obviously it is what the band are doing with that material, they're almost ripping apart. You know, because I've heard um, versions of Ghosts where it's almost a straightforward acoustic singer-songwriter piece. And it's a great straightforward acoustic singer-songwriter piece. But in the hands of Japan, the band, it's an innovative masterwork. You know, it's gone somewhere else. So, you know, there's there's no doubt it's um, a collision of the two because perhaps without Sylvian's songwriting and even with his more recognisable Ferry-esque influence, you wouldn't have had the hooks that could have grabbed people.
0: It still sounds like something that didn't have a precedent and has never really been emulated. Uh, I think it's probably too hard to emulate. I mean, who could play bass like Mick Kahn, you know, or, or drums like Steve Jansen, and no one else has ever really sounded like Richard, you know, as a keyboard player. I mean, they're, they're, so, they're so distinct as musical personalities. Yeah, Yeah,
1: and, and it's great that it kind of came from almost a kind of untutored background, that they just grew up as musicians and evolved and push one another to greater heights.
0: Well, that's fascinating too, isn't it? Because Japan started as a guitar band. And Richard will tell you that for the first few years, he was kind of always worried he was about to get fired because he he wasn't quite sure what his role Mm. was in the band. And yet a couple of years later, three albums later, his keyboards are at the very, very centre uh, and there's, you know, there's no guitar on this. Well, there is a guitar on, on one track, I think, is there or something. But there's hardly any yeah. guitar on the record at all, is it? Well, I mean, this was yeah. the
1: album after Robert Dean um, had left. And, and you know, Robert Dean was a really good guitarist and I think really contributed a great deal to the previous albums. But I guess yeah. on this album, the guitar in any form was considered too conventional an instrument.
0: So there's one other album I wanted to just to, to give a, a brief you know, minute or two to. Cause I do think it's not the part of the problem with this year is there's so many great albums. You'd want to spend a lot of time talking about. Uh, like we mentioned the heaven 17 record, of Penthouse and pavement, which are great again, and a phenomenal record, but I think um, orchestral manoeuvres in the dark architecture and morality is another album. I just want to uh, just spend a moment talking about because they're a strange one too, aren't they? they, they you can't imagine two guys uh, on the, on paper being less cool and any more nerdy than, than, Andy McCluskey and Paul Humphreys from OMD. And this record is full of sounds like, you know, Mellotrons. There's Mellotrons on here. In some respects, it's got a lot of the sort of craftwork DNA that you would expect from from most electro-pop bands. But it's very, very northern again, isn't it? Because these guys, correct me if I'm wrong, these guys were also from Liverpool or the... They're Weir- from the world, also? yeah, I
1: think. Um, so they were part of the Liverpool yeah. post-punk scene, used to rehearse in the same place as Echo and the Bunny
0: Man Teardrop Explodes and so on. And so they've got that, haven't yeah. they? Yeah, they've got, they've got that kind of northern miserabilism. But also what I love about this record, uh, I've not seen anyone else do this, I don't think, is they wrote a song called Joan of Arc, which they weren't happy with, Uh, At least the record company didn't think it was a single. So they wrote another song called Joan of Arc and put both of them on the same record, both called Joan of Arc, both were released (laughs) as singles and both were massive hits. What are the chances of that? Very conceptual. No, I
1: mean, I think that OMD were always kind of smarter... And more experimental than people think because of their hits.
0: I mean, they, they did look like their mums knitted their jumpers on top of the pops, didn't they? <laughs> I think so. And I quite like
1: that about them.
0: OK, Tim, let's talk yeah. about Roops. Rupert Hines, the late greats, he just passed away in the last six months or so. Rupert Hines, it's funny, when we started talking about doing this show and the whole concept behind it, I think one of the reasons we wanted to do it is because we wanted to, not only this record, but we wanted, there were certain records we, we felt we wanted to evangelise about because they're so underrated and unknown. And and to, to us, they're very, very, very special records. Like, for example, we talked about Van Morrison's Common One on the very first episode. Uh, we talked about Virginia Astley's uh, From Gardens Where We Feel Secure. We talked about John G. Perry's Sunset Wading." This is another of those records, isn't it? Rupert Hine, Immunity. How do, you, how, do you, how do you talk about this record, Tim? How do you explain kind of what musical world this is from, for a start? I think it's, um, it's a fantastic album. I mean, I mean, what it is, it's
1: in that category where there are very, very few albums. And we seem to like all of them. And I'd say that you're talking about Gabriel 3, Gabriel 4, Kate Bush, The Dreaming, where every sound is processed, to the nth degree, really kind of inventive art pop.
0: Yeah, there's a definite, there's a definite strong emphasis on sound design in all the songs. I mean, they're, they all feel like little short stories, don't they? The songs. And obviously you'd expect that from a producer. But obviously, you know, the the other thing is I just love his voice. He's not got perhaps the same, you know, soul element to his voice like Gabriel, but his voice is very rich and very engaging despite that. So I kind of think of him certainly in the same same territory as the artist you're mentioning, but I also think of him very much as being contemporaries of uh, of this record being a contemporary of, say, what Godly and Cream were doing on a record like Freeze Frame. I mean, a a song like I Pity inanimate Objects, I could totally see Rupert also doing something along those lines on one of these records too. And lest we also forget, this is the the beginning, this is the first in a run of three albums, which I very much think of as a trilogy in the sense that they're all just as good as each other. Because, I mean, for anybody that's interested in production, as of course I am, and sound design... Uh, allied to sort of great, imaginative, ambitious pop writing. Partly because of where
1: he came from, he was doing something very different. You know, he'd um, produced people like Kevin Ayres and Caravan, Camel. They produced Camel, Anthony Phillips. Mm. So he'd come very much from a kind of art rock, progressive rock background. But what was really exciting about this album was it sounded like nothing he'd ever done before. You know, this was a scorched earth policy and I think this is kind of interesting isn't it that you know we're talking about a few bands here like you know Japan with Tindrum, Rush with Moving Pictures, Rupert Heim with Immunity it's almost like in 1981 they make these albums that seem to come from nowhere it's like they've completely reinvented themselves and it is some kind of scorched earth policy and that as we both know is incredibly difficult to achieve you know you can progress as an artist you can evolve you can subtly shift your sound but it's difficult to escape yourself and become something entirely different
0: anyway that's definitely one of our tips for the the most underrated under the radar records Rupert Hines immunity particularly if you like any of the references we've we've kind of talked about So other solo mavericks this year, Peter Hamill's Sitting Targets, one of our favourites on the show. We always talk about Peter. Bill Nelson's Quit Dreaming and Get On The Beam. Ditto, really, another of our favourites. Todd Rundgren's Healing, uh, Ricky Lee Jones' Pirates. But the other solo maverick record we want to talk about is is Phil Collins' Face Value, um, his first solo record, which, again, is an album that kind of defied all the odds, uh, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Both in, in, in terms of musical approach and the phenomenal international success, and not only also not only those that have defied the odds in that sense defied the odds in the sense that the biggest hit single off it uh in the air tonight should never have been a hit single mm. it doesn 't sound like a hit single it it does everything wrong it does everything that a hit single is not supposed to do it 's this kind of brooding drama i mean this this song. Would never in a million years get on the radio now, would it? It would never in a million years get playlisted by anyone now. But somehow in 1981, songs like Japan's Ghosts and, yes, Phil Collins in the air tonight could get on the radio, playlisted on the radio and become massive Yeah, hits. become top five.
1: I mean, Laurie Anderson's O Superman, I think, was this year as well. wasn't Laurie
0: it? Anderson's Oh Superman, yeah. How did this happen? And, you know, it's sad in a way this could never happen now. But but here's a great example. Phil Collins, even though he was already an established, successful musician, he was the balding drummer of a band that were considered in 1981 to be dinosaurs. Sure. Right?
1: He got on the cover of Melody Maker. He was treated quite seriously by enemy. We forget this because by the mid part of the decade, he's persona non grata. And I can tell you that, you know, when we have Burning Shed Zoom meetings, I can put anything as a backdrop. Nothing will generate more ire and mockery than when I put Phil Collins' Face Value behind me, the cover.
0: It's a great record. Brilliant record. I mean, the interesting thing is I always think of Face Value as being the other side of the coin of of John Martin's Grace and Danger. Yeah, Uh, Because they're both essentially albums that are very melancholic in tone about their breakups with their long-term partners. And lest we forget, they were hanging out together. Uh, and Phil, I think, is the drummer on, on Grace and Danger, isn't he? Um, yeah. And, and I think he maybe produced the following record. Um, Which anyway, is really but,
1: good. Yeah, he did. Yeah.
0: So they, they're kind of hanging out together. They're, they're kind of drinking buddies. They're, I think there's a lot of sort of crying into their beer, sort of, or crying into their brandies or whatever it is they're drinking going on here about the fact their wives had uh, essentially left them. And that tangible sense of despair which goes right through grace and danger is absolutely present on face value too isn't it and I think that's one of the things I I really you know love about it Um, it's kind of wallowing in its own sadness in a way but for whatever reason it also has the kind of accessibility and sheen about it that, that grace and danger apparently doesn't have I think maybe just his voice is just It's just a great pop voice, isn't it? It's just got that great pop It is an
1: amazing voice. And the thing is, in in some ways, again, he's being very true to himself. There is an aspect of scorched earth on this because I think in the air tonight, although you could argue it comes out of his work with Gabriel on Gabriel 3, there aren't very many precedents. And as you've said, it's an extraordinary single. You know, this lasts for minutes with very simple synthesizer tones. You know, it's not that far off ghosts in terms of its structurelessness, if you like um and it's a very affecting lyric and vocal but i think what's kind of forgotten in retrospect is that although that you know by the mid 80s i think he'd become associated with susudio and and a certain kind of commercial definitively 1980s sheen i think at that point people were, were oddly still open to it and i was very surprised at the time that uh, given that genesis were perceived as dinosaurs He got very sympathetic interviews and reviews in The Enemy and Melody Maker at that time. So he was getting, they realised that this was a complete shift in direction. And of course, names like um, John Martin were being brought up. So people were saying, God, this is amazing. It has the kind of experimentalism of Gabriel III, but he's fusing that with the emotional, heartfelt qualities of. Grace and Danger. And I think Grace and Danger had been a very well-regarded and well-reviewed album at the time. And so maybe people were sort of seeing it in the light of that album rather than Genesis Duke, I suppose. Um, and this was him stepping out of, of the Genesis role. And um, again, a bit like the Carla Blay, it's a bit like a Greatest Hits album in the sense that you have him at his most experimental, him... Uh, with big band jazz influences, him with fusion influences, even that kind of really affecting country banjo ballad. Um, the roof is leaking. You know this quite a lot of diverse material, but you know some of the most affecting material is the most obviously um, R and B ballad. I think you know if leaving me Is easy is one of the most. Oh, I
0: love that song. Yeah, I love wonderful that song. I pieces say, yeah. of that era. I mean, that's that a track that could be on Grace and Danger, isn't it? I mean, if you, th- yeah. if you think of songs on Grace and Danger, like Baby Please Come Home, you know, I mean, If Leaving Me Is Easy is definitely, uh, you know, a, a very close, close relation to a song like that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's another anomaly that, in a year that seems to be full of them. Um, we should probably just, again, remind people that, you know, we, we are... Middle-aged white men who grew up in the 80s. So, so a lot of what we're talking about on this show is is definitely a reflection of that. But um, let's move into different genres that perhaps take us slightly more out of our comfort zone. Metal. So it was a pretty good time for metal, wasn't it? Because we, we were kind of in the in the sort of halcyon days of new wave of British heavy metal. Lots of metal bands have got signed, got big record deals off the back of of you know that movement um your maidens your Mm -hmm. saxons your deaf leopards and that and the the kind of bands that are are destined to become the long-term successes are beginning to establish themselves uh and perhaps some of the also rands are falling away so this year we have iron maiden second album killers now i'm i'm a big apologist for the first two maiden albums i i think they're my two favourite uh, Maiden albums. Uh, I, I love the more punky edge uh, of the Paul Diano albums. Yeah. The, uh, the first album f- for me is, is an absolute classic. Killers is a little bit more of the same, but that's not a bad thing necessarily. There's something about
1: those first two I Maiden albums that is very gritty, very grubby, very London. There's a kind of punk edge, not new wave edge. There's a kind of really grubby urban punk element to it. And they managed to merge prog, metal and punk Pretty naturally, I think, on those first two albums.
0: We've also got the Mighty Sabs uh, with Mob Rules. We've got Saxon's Denim and Leather. We've got Venom's Welcome to Hell, which I think was the first Venom album, which a band that were, were, were going to become very influential, probably ten to fifteen years later, with the Scandinavian black metal scene. Mm-hmm. Venom was seen as, as, you know, sort of precursor to that whole scene. Michael Schenker Group, MSG, Def Leppard's High and Dry, their second album. Uh, Ozzy Osbourne's Diary of a Madman. So these are all really strong entries in the sort of canon of metal. I suppose we're in an interesting period here, aren't we? Because we're kind of before the era of of sort of so-called hair metal. We're, we're before the era of the Motley Crue's and the Guns N' Roses, where metal became a, a, a little more glam. It's still got that sort of... Sort of um, urgency and down-to-earth quality. Def Leppard have yet to have their big sort of breakout, crossover records. So there's still that kind of, you know, we mentioned it before, that kind of punk edge to a lot of this music, but also an edge that relates back to things like early Judas Priest early Thin Lizzy early Black Sabbath a more kind of dry parched production there isn't the big massed harmony vo- walls of harmony vocals there isn't the big sort of you know gunshot snare sounds yet it's still got that aesthetic of being a relatively uh, almost like a kind of DIY it's, aesthetic which is personally what I like yeah. I like it. it's kind
1: of coming right. though because you can hear it, you know Def Leppard's Dry they are going to evolve into that UFOs album of this year is quite FM compared to what they'd Done previously, and then you've got the American FM rock bands. So you sort of emerged in the mid to late seventies, and I'd say kind of Boston is almost like
0: the progenitor of that. Let's move on, um, jazz. Perhaps not a vintage year for jazz. I mean, we've talked about this before, how the the mid-70s was kind of like a a watershed time for jazz as it became more, moved more towards the kind of smooth CTI sound. Artists like Deodato having big crossover hits and a lot of other jazz musicians kind of wanted a piece of the action. So there were artists like Weather Report making albums like Black Market and Heavy Weather, more kind of accessible commercial jazz. So we get to 1981. ECM always keep the flame. They're they're sort of... uh, almost a, a guarantee of some quality. And we have some great records on ECM this year. Keith Jarrett's Invocations, Moth and the Flame, which is not a jazz record at all. Mm. You know, I mean, Keith Jarrett's one of those artists that has just gone completely outside of the genre to, from which he's, with which he's traditionally associated. Invocations is a record he made on a church organ and Moth and the Flame is, is, is a, a solo piano record. Uh, wonderful record, a, a very unpredictable artist. You never knew what Keith... Particularly in the 80s, actually, you never knew what Keith Jarrett was going to do next. So very unpredictable artist right through the 80s. I'm sure jazz, you know, jazz aficionados didn't really know what to make of him, uh, which is a great, great thing as far as I'm concerned. Pat Metheny and Lyle May's As Falls Wichita, So's Falls Wichita Falls. That's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? it uh, is. Tell us about this record, Tim.
1: Well, I think it's possibly the best album, really. I mean you're talking about Jarrett was continually shifting and making albums that really weren't jazz in any conventional sense. And that was good because I think, you know, jazz, obviously in the 60s and 70s went through a very experimental phase. And unfortunately, I think by the late 70s, early 80s, you know, Weather Report was still making interesting albums. Overall, it had become a lot more conventional and a lot more traditional. I think people were looking back to the 50s, the classic kind of post-bop albums, um, but ECM, as you say, were kind of keeping that flame alive for jazz musicians being able to do whatever they wanted. So you were getting beautiful genreless albums by the likes of Pat Metheny, Ralph Towner, Oregon. The Pat Metheny and Lame's album has a sidelong textual suite. You know, it's as close to Vangelis as it is to jazz. But the harmonies they're using are kind of influenced by Brazilian folk music. And a lot of the rhythms are coming from Steve Reich. And of course, he was signed to ECM at that stage as well. So they were probably very familiar with what he was doing. So it was an interesting kind of collision of electronics, minimalism, Brazilian harmonies, and that very fluid, distinctive guitar tone of Metheny's. Just a, a really strong unexpected album that did extremely well. And I think John Sermon was also experimenting a lot with synthesizers around that time as well.
0: All these guys, John Sermon too, actually, they're fascinating musicians in the sense that, that, like Keith Jarrett, they're very unpredictable, aren't they? I mean, I'm thinking of Pat Metheny and what he's done... You Know over the last 25 years, he did a noise album called Zero Tolerance yeah. for Silence, you know, which is also awesome, Mertzbau esque. He did now with Derek Bailey, free jazz album. He's done his albums with the Orchestrion, which is this bizarre kind of like musical instrument that he invented, I think, or somebody invented for him. I'm not too sure. And a lot of these records you would barely say could be, you know, considered jazz at all. And it's mm. interesting to know, I think it's worth pointing out that ECM, although they're they're nominally known as a jazz label. Of course, ECM stands for Editions of Contemporary Music. And I think Manfred Eichert, the guy who set up the label, also had always had visions that it would be much more than just a, you know, a simple quote-unquote jazz label. And, of course, ECM became as much known for its neoclassical music as course, its jazz yeah. music. S- starting around this time, as you're right, because they signed Steve Reich and they had Arvo Pert and then later on they had all these other sort of classical, classical artists coming to the label... And it's interesting, you see that reflected in the so-called jazz artists too. I mean, making, almost kind of having pretensions at being... One of the very early Keith Jarrett records on ECM was um, a record called In the Light, which was his string quartets and a brass quintet and, you know, pieces he was writing in a serious classical mode. So I think that's the beautiful thing about this label. There is that sense always that the so-called jazz musicians always seem to be much more eclectic. Uh, and diverse than, than you would ever expect a jazz musician to be. And Pat Metheny and uh, Lyle Mays, of course, passed away quite recently, didn't he? Yes, he, he did, um, yeah.
1: Another ECM artist around this time I really liked um, was Meredith Monk. Again, she was signed to, to ECM um, and releasing yeah. albums and producing some extraordinary albums of kind of vocal compositions.
0: I mean she's not jazz at all, is she? She comes almost from, from the performance art yeah. background, doesn't she? Yeah. Um also this year we have Miles releasing his his big comeback record after the uh, after the big hiatus of the seventies, at least in terms of studio terms, I think there was a live album, wasn't there? But uh or maybe it was after this, I don't I'm not sure. The Man with the Horn. Now, the thing I always think about The Man with the Horn is it's actually a good record. Except I don't think Miles is playing that well on it. And I think the the hiatus has kind of taken its toll on him. Two records that we both like very much from this this year. I love both. I think, Tim, you definitely love the Grace Jones record at least. Uh, Grace Jones' Nightclubbing and Prince Controversy, which to me, being a massive Prince fan, only suffers because it came after Dirty Mind, uh, which is such a, a landmark masterpiece for me. Controversy seems a little bit like more of the same for me, but that's not to say it's not a brilliant record, which it is. Um, And Grace Jones nightclubbing, uh, you know, part of a trilogy of records, I suppose, that she made around this time. With they're all made very in very quick succession in the Bahamas with Sly and Robbie as her as a rhythm section. And there's again, there's a there's a kind of connection to the New York world of artists like Talking Heads. Yeah, it fits beautifully. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, I was going to say, I
1: think again, I think her delivery, which is so detached, so ice cold, fits with the post punk language of the day i mean so so again she's kind of got this funk aspect this r&b aspect there's also the kind of post-punk dance culture that's emerging in new york so weirdly she fits beautifully with so many scenes that are happening in you know, yeah, it's true. 81. It's true.
0: I hadn't thought about. Yeah, because of course she she covers. She's lost control. Yeah. Uh, from Joy Division, and she also covers "Warm Leatherette" by the Normal, uh, which is great. So, th- and her version, I think, is the definitive version.
1: It's a bit like the Prince controversy in the sense that "Warm Leatherette" was so good and such a statement that "Nightclubbing," as strong an album as it is, seems very much like part two. It didn't quite have the shock value. The material's great. The title track is particularly stunning but there is a sense of it repeating what warm leatherette has already set out which is is no bad thing because i love warm leatherette
0: okay so we're running out of time tim so we should we should just quickly recap on some of the other things we haven't spoken about yet uh just general rock and and pop records elo's time love that record abba's the visitors their final record which is a masterpiece uh, we've talked about abba before on the show so we won't we won't talk about them again here uh squeeze east side story Elvis Costello and the Attractions Trust, uh, Madness 7, Adam and the Ants, Prince Charming, Face Dances by The Who and The Rolling Stones, Tattoo You. And then in the world of, well, you've got the electronic category. Yes. Oh, yes. Well, there is one album here I I did want to talk about a little bit. Um, Just to recap on other records from this year, Craftworks, Computer World. Of course, we could wax lyrical about that album forevermore. but, But I think Kraftwerk are almost part of the canon now these days, yeah. aren't they? And, and I've been discussed and perhaps over Computer World is just a phenomenal record that was so influential, it's ridiculous. But we won't talk about it here because I want to talk about the dark twin of Kraftwerk's Computer World. Deutsche Amerikanische Freundschaft, which is a bit of a mouthful. And their album, actually they made two albums this year, but the first album, Alice is Good, All is Good, is the is the breakthrough record. The band were originally a post-punk group with about five or six members and they made some very, very sort of um, interesting post-punk music. Suddenly they were down to a duo of a drummer and a singer and they came out with this record called Alice Is Good which is basically drums, voice and sequencer and that's pretty much all there is to it. It's a very, very small musical palette but what they do with it is incredible. And it is very similar to the Kraftbook in you cannot, you can almost you can almost can't imagine anything more Teutonic than the sound of Daff. Singing in German, but in a way that sounds good. The way that Rammstein sounds good to people who don't speak German. Daff sounds good to me too. And they have a very infamous song on this record, which was a kind of almost hit called The Mussolini. Do the Mussolini, which is like this stomping dance track with just this propulsive sequencer and propulsive drum pattern and then uh the singer gabby delgado lopez basically singing do the mussolini dance the adolf hitler over the top (laughs) like the sound of that i I love this 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 is as i say this is like the evil twin of craft work this is like the bastard offspring of the classic crack rock of the 70s the repetition the propulsiveness the kind of detached archness of it, the irony. And I absolutely adore it. It's like electro-punk. And it's basically all you need to know about this one band. All you need to know about this band is in this one song. Because basically everything on the next three records was the same. It would be a sequencer pattern that would start off. A fantastic sequencer, by the way. I don't know what keyboard they used, but I love the sound of the sequencer. This kind of demented, out-of-control sequencer would start up. And then the drums would, would sort of kick in. Um, in a very kind of repetitive way. No drum fills allowed. No drum fills allowed. Just this kind of motonic pulse. And then this Spanish-born singer would start intoning in German over the top. And there's also the
1: dark wave to come. I mean, this sound defines a lot of German electronic yes, music yeah. of the next 20, 30 years, really. It's very right, stripped down. Right, it does. Yes. And as you say, in a way, it's kind of, you know, the only precedent I can hear is maybe suicide. There's an aspect of suicide in this sound, but in some ways it is like punk music being played on synthesisers, but there's a kind of a sultry, Absolutely. you know, th- but there's a sultry understatement that punk doesn't necessarily have, which is why I guess I prefer Daft to Sham 69. Yeah, as you say, it's
0: an incredibly
1: German sound. It could be none other.
0: So also this year from, elect- from the world of electronic music, Van Gallis, Chariots of Fire, and John, John and Van Gallis, the Friends of Mr Cairo. Jean-Michel Jarre's Le Chant Magnétique, uh, Yellow's Clara Kisset, C. Sorry, YMO's Technodelic, and Tangerine Dream's Exit. Also, what else have we got we haven't talked about? Oh, well, you've got a category here called Experimental. I think this is where you've, you've tended to put sort of outliers, things like the... Penguin Cafe Orchestra's second album. Now, I think I'm right in thinking that we talked about the first album, didn't we, when uh, yeah. when we did the, uh, I guess it would have been the 1976 episode. Yeah. So a, b- a bit more of the same, but they, they're they such a kind of, they inhabit such a wonderfully kind of unique world anyway of their own, don't they, that it's, it's, no, it's, no sh- it's no sort of criticism to say that they're kind of doing more of the same here on this record.
1: No, it's, it's another charming album. It's, it's maybe not quite as interesting as the debut in some ways, but it's a great record.
0: So there's one final category that we should recap on. We we did talk at the beginning of the episode about the Northwest regional post-punk, which is very specifically about the post-punk music that came out from, from Manchester and and Liverpool. But of course there was some other fantastic music from a scene that was still really, you know, very, very much at a peak at this time. Susie and the Banshee's Juju, The Cure's Faith, which, I mean, I just love that record, but we've talked about 17 seconds and it's kind of more of the same, isn't it, uh, in the best possible sense of the word. The sound from the Lion's Mouth, very underrated uh, post-punk group. They kind of almost sort of nodded towards the stadium, you know, sound of bands like U2 a little bit too, didn't they? Ditto, Comsat Angels.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you're right. I think those bands, kind of Comsat Angels, the sound, they're in between Joy Division And U2. And they've got something of both. They've got that kind of anthemic quality of U2, but they've still got that really quite stark, unique, parched post-punk production.
0: Yeah. And ditto Psychedelic Furs, I think, uh, with their album from this year, Talk, Talk, Talk. Um, And then we've got the so-called beginnings of the the sort of goth scene, you know, along with The Cure. Uh, The Birthday Party, Prayers on Fire, one of Nick Cave's earliest works, of course, uh, in the context of that band. Bauhaus Mask, their second album au pairs playing with a different sex uh, The stranglers la folie came out this year matt johnson who later became uh, started working under the name of the the released his first uh, album this year burning blue soul so another another icon to come starting out on his musical path this year and ilus in gaza uh his memories their first album mm-hmm. a favorite of ours tim over the years hasn't it ilus in gaza martin bates and ilus in gaza we've uh,
1: We've been kind of curious so, about yeah. them over
0: the years, haven't we? Well,
1: I think the thing about Alice and Casa is that they fitted in with that post-punk vocabulary, but they always had something that little bit more fragile, human and earthy. You know, there was kind of um, a traditional folk element that was even in the earliest albums by that band. And I think that as the band evolve, you know, and, and they evolve in experimental ways with electronics and a lot of um, drum experiments, in particular, but there's something. Maybe it's in Martin Bates' voice that that I always think has a kind of an, an ancient folk, almost shamanic quality. Did, I don't did know.
0: we not talk about the murder ballads? Well, we did, we yeah. did, didn't we? We talked about the Martin Bates, Mick Harris murder ballads. Album. Yeah. But I listen. The thing I love about I listen Gaza is that they never they never seem to get out of the bedroom. <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean by that? Yeah, yeah. That e- even even five or six years, out five or six albums into their career, they still sounded like there was just a couple of guys having you know fun on their sort of porter studio in their bedroom yeah uh it's a very D-I-S- diy aesthetic it didn't seem to it didn't seem to have aspirations to be anything bigger than it was and it, it's very charming and very intimate and 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 again it has that sort of lo-fi thing uh right through their career yeah i suppose
1: the, the thing i liked about alice and Gus, as you say i think on one level this is music made purely for themselves they're not writing it for an audience they're not writing it for success And I guess what kind of distinguishes them from a lot of the post-punk bands is that there's no archness in Martin Bates' voice. He doesn't have that clipped quality that was very fashionable. And you can even hear in Grace Jones, as we were talking about. His voice is from a different place altogether.
0: Great. Shall we leave it there, Tim? That's a lot of records we've covered in a very short space of time. And, uh... So basically, if we haven't mentioned your favourite band or your favourite artists, it is because we hate them. It's not. It's nothing to do with ignorance and us not knowing it at all, right, Tim? It's actually because we know it all, we just hate it and we don't want to we, talk about We it.
1: know everything. I think it's, you yeah. know, it's one of the
0: facts the album years yeah. has established beyond... Any of them. It's also worth pointing out that if you if you are interested in hearing any of the music we talk about, we do put together a playlist on Spotify based on each episode we've done. So there will be uh, within 24 hours of this episode going up, there should be uh, an episode dedicated to 1981 where myself and Tim choose choice cuts from some of the albums we've talked about. So, Tim, the last thing that remains to be done, as we do always, uh, as is customary at the end of the show, is we choose our if push comes to shove, our favourite or favourites, if we can't come down on one in particular, and the album that we feel is the most influential. So you go first.
1: I mean, I find it almost impossible because I mean the one thing I remember from this year is that I love. Say, t- ah.
0: say that every time. You say that every time. I find it almost impossible. Oh, not
1: come on! When we did 1973, I said Dark Side of the Moon without any hesitation. Whereas you were going... going, I've heard it so often, I can't listen to it anymore.
0: It isn't even music to my ears. (laughs) I wasn't quite saying that, yeah. I think you said
1: that in that exact voice, if I remember correctly. Um, I mean, there were a lot of albums that I played quite a lot during this year. And actually, you know, again, even Squeezy Side Story, I thought that was one of their best albums with some fantastic singles. There were great singles this year, you know, Oh Superman, I'm In Love With A German Film Star, Under Your Thumb, Godly and Cream. There were so many. In terms of album, I guess... You know, I, I played so many of these—an awful lot. You know, looking through this list, it can be anything from, you know, the Catherine Wheel to Immunity to Face Value to Tin Drum to even Gary Newman's Dance um, and New Order's Movement. These are albums that I've played an awful but lot. Are you just—are you, well. just you just going to
0: list—are you just going to list all the albums we've talked about again, Tim? Or you're actually going to choose one?
1: From Magazine's Magic Murder and the Weather to, um, yeah, Get I'm going to list it. every album. that we've listened to on this. Even The Strangler's La Folie. it's a great album. Oh, Um, for goodness (laughs) sake. Pat Metheny. Oh, God. I'm going to go with Japan Tin Drum for both my favourite and the most innovative. I'm going to just cut it down to that one release.
0: I think that's a very, very good choice. I definitely would would choose Tin Drum as one of my favourite albums of the year, if not my favourite album of the year. I'm just looking through the list quickly to see if there's anything else that would compete with it. Uh, and there are the Nick Mason album, actually. I love um Yeah, great. Also Simple Simple Mind, Sons and Fascination. I'm not gonna do what I've just accused you of doing and, and list every album again. Um most influential, um is Tindrum. is because we kind of talked about that, it didn't it didn't really begat much, did it, in the way of music that was influenced by it or at least at least audibly influenced by it. This is a very hard album to sort of copy, wasn't it, in that respect? Yeah,
1: I suppose you're right. I mean, I, I'm thinking more in terms of production.
0: I think for most influential album, I'm going to go for or for the, the Kraftwerk uh, computer world, which has just, uh, just been ridiculously uh, influential. It's cast a shadow, really, over the whole sort of, you know, world of electronic music and pop in general ever since. Uh, and as its evil twin, the the DAF album Alice is Good, uh, which as you kind of pointed out earlier, is kind of the the, the godfather of a lot of dark wave music, uh, of which there is a lot in the world. It has to be said. So there we go. I think we'll leave it there. Uh, we'll try and edit, edit this episode down to a manageable length. Um, although we are getting more self indulgent as we move into our conceptual progressive rock phase. My t- Tim and myself, who started off making succinct. 40 minute long statements we're now into the worlds of sort of double and triple album you know sprawling concept records where people would say that would have made a great single episode right yeah
1: I mean you know again looking through there are so many of these albums that still mean an awful lot to me this is why I almost recited the list in its entirety for my favorite album
0: can we on that subject for our next episode can we pick a year where we hate almost everything so that we can keep it down to about 40 minutes
1: well, obviously, in 1992, I think we found about two albums we actually liked, so that was well exactly,
0: bad. exactly. Yeah, you want that. So let's try and let's try and pick a year where we hate most most of the music made, and then we can, you know, make it easy for ourselves basically by doing that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for listening, and uh, I hope you enjoyed this first episode of our second run uh, at this uh, absurdist, opinionated, factually incorrect show. Uh, and there will be plenty more to come. Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye, and goodbye from Tim. Goodbye. <laughs>